You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. Uh, this is Jordan Schrader taking a turn in the host chair this week. And with me are Will Doran, Craig Jarvis, and Lynn Bonner. And uh, a little later, we'll have Colin Campbell here. And uh, we're also going to have uh, the candidates for attorney general uh, speaking. Uh, we'll play some tape from Colin's interviews uh, with Buck Newton and Josh Stein. Uh, but first, we'll talk about the debates this week. And we'll talk about uh, voter registration. Uh, the deadline, uh, we're recording this on Friday, and the deadline for voter registration uh, was Today, Friday, if people want to vote in on Election Day itself, uh, there's still plenty of time, plenty of chances, though, for people to register to vote uh, during early voting if they want to vote the same day. Uh, Lynn, there was a push to move back that Friday deadline and give people more time for that regular voter registration. Um, so uh, what was the request? Well, the NAACP, uh, Common Cause North Carolina, and the Democratic Party at various times this week um, wanted asked the uh, State Board of Elections to move the voter registration deadline because of Hurricane Matthew. A couple of requests to move it to Wednesday, um, and there was one request, NAACP wanted it moved to Saturday, tomorrow, as we're recording this. State Board of Elections had a couple of chances to look at this and uh, did not move the deadline. There is some leeway for people who mail in their application forms because uh, postal service is disrupted in uh, in a lot of eastern uh, North Carolina counties. But um, you people have to sign and uh, try to get their uh, at least mail their um, applications in today or take them in to boards of elections uh, today. Um, so, but as you said, um, there are going to be more chances to register if you aren't right now. Uh, during early voting, there is a procedure uh, where you can register and vote on the same day. Um some people were saying, well, that isn't good enough because there are more documents required. Uh, you need proof of residency in order to register during early voting. And a lot of people who are separated from their homes just don't have those kinds of documents. But, uh, you know, here we are um, in election season uh, with uh, major hurricane and flooding having disrupted um, the lives of thousands of people in um, about a third of the state. And the state board kept the deadline the way it is. What did they say about uh, why they were doing that and uh, whether people would have enough opportunities to uh, well, vote later? Well, part of the reason is um, just in terms of process. Um, the local elections boards have to take those registrations, put them in the system, and have them ready for the start of early voting. And uh, the elections board director um, said yesterday that the elections board spend all weekend, once the deadline ends, putting those names in. They have to be ready by Thursday when early voting starts. And there was a question about whether if there was a, uh, if there were a 
substantial number coming in next week, whether they could do that. What looks to be the uh, effects from Matthew on uh, on the election? Uh, it's a little probably early to say, but uh, is this going to really depress turnout in eastern North Carolina? Well, there's, uh, there's a significant chance that it would do that. I mean, we can look at um, Sandy from four years ago and what happened um, in New Jersey and Connecticut where there were severe effects. And um, turnout was depressed. So um, uh, the uh, Senator Dan Blue was making the point earlier this week that, you know, when people are worried about their survival, when they've lost, you know, all their possessions, um, they're really not thinking about casting a vote. Sure. Okay, well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. And as uh, as the fallout uh, uh, continues, uh, we'll see um, what what effects this does have on the election. Um, so other than constant visits from presidential and vice presidential candidates this week, uh, this week was notable for uh, the debates in the uh, Senate and governor's race, the two big statewide races. And I say the debates because it pretty much was the only debate, at least in the, the Senate race. Uh, in the governor's race, we did have uh, another one that wasn't televised earlier and another one that will be televised next week. Uh, but this was uh, just about your only chance to see these candidates. Uh, Craig, uh, you watched the, the governor's debate. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, I think it was notable for uh, its aggressiveness on the part of both candidates. They both really came out of the gate swinging, uh, calling each other in so many words or, or literally liars. Uh, a number of times in, in uh, meeting campaign statements and advertising and so they're really swinging they, they covered most of the topics you'd expect to I think pretty much everything but coal ash I guess you know uh, the governor has been criticized during his term for his ties to Duke Energy or his his former employer or his former ties and uh, Cooper didn't go there I guess he could have gone gone uh, gone that way but it it got pretty nasty at one point Cooper did turn to the governor and say, what planet are you on? Uh, down, down a ways in the debate, the governor managed to uh, inject the name John Edwards as, as a, uh, as a comp- comparison. And those both didn't seem to be in reaction to anything. No. They both just seemed to be lines that they had prepared to, uh, to yeah. deploy and then remembered this would be a good time to do that. They, yeah, that <laughs> I guess that at least sense. the McCrory one was in response to something that he claimed Cooper had had wrong. Uh, yeah. the, the what planet on you on one so yeah, seemed to come out of nowhere. I agree. They were both like little bullets they pulled out and said, oh, this is a good time to shoot that one in it. John Edwards, I mean, not, has not been in the discussion uh, for quite a while now. So that was kind of surprising. Um, after the debates, the both candidates met with reporters for a little bit. McCrory said he thought it was a good opportunity to cut through the ads. He complained that he's being uh, outspent three to one. And so this was a chance to cut through. He said the BS. Uh, Cooper said Cooper used the uh, his post debate comments to say that um, uh, to tie uh, McCrory to Donald Trump, and that kind of happened in uh, I think there were if, if if you can call them missteps or a couple missteps, uh, McCrory the the moderator Chuck Todd asked McCrory did, was is Donald Trump a role model, 
And he said, well, no, not with the way he's talking, that vulgar language. And he said, well, is he a role model in any way? And I think maybe the governor could have steered the language away from that. But, but, but when he ended up saying, well, he's a role model on a number of, you know, taking a stand on a number of outside things, I think that he mentioned Syrian refugees in that context. But, um, uh, you know, so that was, uh, he, he probably could have steered it away. But that was the takeaway for the Democrats is governor says uh, Donald Trump is a role model. So, um, well, we're on that. Let me jump to Will for a minute. Yeah. You checked that claim that uh, McCrory made, not about Donald Trump being a role model. <laughs> no, I don't, no. Would, I don't know how he would check that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the claim about Syrian refugees, I think the claim was that. Uh, we're not vetting them, or we can't vet them. Right, yeah, that uh, that kind of jumped out to me because I know um, a lot of uh, national politicians have talked about that and usually, um, you know, don't really uh, traffic in the truth when they are talking about it. Um, Donald Trump, for instance, has gotten false from PolitiFact before talking about Syrian refugees. So that kind of piqued my interest when McCrory brought it up himself, and he said something along the lines of... Um, that uh, here in North Carolina, which actually we are the, we're in the one of the top ten states for resettling Syrian refugees. There's a lot, especially in the Triad area um, around Greensboro and High Point, um, about 430 now total. Um, but uh, McGorry said that he, you know, obviously talking with FBI agents about the refugees that are coming here. That he said the FBI, you know, laughed when they said when he asked how they're being vetted and said they're not being vetted and said that the FBI doesn't even know, uh, you know, where these people go. And that's just, that's not really based in a whole lot of truth. Um, they are definitely being vetted. There's a, uh, a multi-year long vetting process that, um, includes, you know, background checks and even some classified information. Of course, uh, McCrory does have a point, I guess, that it's not always a perfect system. I mean, these people are, refugees, of course, they're fleeing bombing and terrorist attacks, you know, you don't always bring, you know, your birth certificate with you. Um, and then there's also the problem that, you know, Syria doesn't have great records of its own, you know, criminal databases. And we also don't have uh, troops or spies on the ground who can tell us, you know, uh, you know, which people or even people from which areas might be most associated with terrorist groups. So the, the information isn't perfect. It's not 100% complete. Um, but we are definitely vetting them, and it's a very long process. And actually, the process has basically resulted in we just don't let in any men of what they call combat age, which is essentially late teens to your 50s. Only 2% of Syrian refugees are in that age range, and the rest are basically children, senior citizens, and women. Um, and uh, then also on the FBI thing, I mean, we, we do know where the Syrian refugees are being settled. We have, you know, the numbers, there's, you know, 83 in Raleigh, there's 101 in High Point. We have, you know, the very specific numbers. But um, it's true that the FBI doesn't automatically track them after they come here. And I'm, like I said, uh, you know, half of them are children. So, you know, I think the FBI probably would argue it would be wasting its time tracking a lot of children. Um, but uh, the FBI does track refugees who it later determines have ties to extremism. They actually arrested some Iraqi refugees several years ago who were trying to smuggle weapons. Um, so, yeah, there just wasn't really much claim or much uh, much truth to this claim that McCrory was throwing out there, um, you know, about uh, which which I suppose is true, you know, in defending Donald Trump, who isn't exactly known for his own 
truthful, <laughs> strong statements. Um, but yeah, so so that's what we found on that. Craig, what else? Uh, what else did the two of them talk about? HB two was <clears throat> a, a big point of uh, contention. Of course, we expected that. It was the first question. Yeah, and it kind of. Yeah, I think it was kind of a running theme because later in the debate, they uh, uh, Chuck Todd asked them where Caitlyn Jenner should, which facility she should use, and that that was quite a uh, quite a go, go around. Cooper said that it should, you know, what he always says, that HB2 should be repealed. And the governor said, well, she should, if she runs around the track at UNC Chapel Hill, um, then it's time to shower, she should go to the men's room, which that's, you know, kind of the heart of the whole matter. I will say when another, if, if there was a mistake, a misstep on Cooper's side, it was his kind of puzzling insistence on this rainy, the rainy day fund, which was another fact check Will knows about. But um, you know, he and he uh, he said that uh, the, that the governor, the legislature, and the governor had taken money out of the rainy, rainy day fund to defend HB two. And uh, in fact, the governor's made it clear from the beginning that's not what he was going to use the money for. Uh, it sounds bad. It was something that, for some reason, was kind of circulating again on the uh, internet this week. Uh, but I'm not sure why it resurrected. But it's it's <laughs> yeah. That seems to that, that article seems to pop up every yeah. time that there's a storm or anything like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, you're right. McCrory's people after after the debate have been calling that the lie of the night. Um, that's been their yeah, their take on it. So I'm actually looking into that for PolitiFact oh, now. We haven't okay. done a ruling yet, oh. um, <laughs> but that's one of the things I'm working on today. Yeah, he seemed to walk into that one. That's a natural fact check. Yeah, there were some other uh, things that stuck out to me too um, as well. They were talking about um, both of them obviously going back and forth on taxes, you know, who who has, you know, helped or hurt the middle class more. And uh, then uh, there's also an interesting moment on um, on Obamacare that I'm trying to, to get to the bottom to, of wh where uh, McCrory said uh, that, you know, uh, basically families, you know, in North Carolina on Obamacare are paying an extra twenty or $30,000 in premiums. Um, and I, I asked his campaign about that, haven't really gotten uh, much of a response. And uh, I need to still do some digging into that. That'll probably be next week. But uh, that that got a lot of traction on Twitter. Um, people were going back and forth on. Uh, yeah. And I'm looking. I'm taking a look at the taxes question too. At one point, McCrory said uh, to the to Cooper, who has criticized <coughs> McCrory's McCrory's tax uh, cuts as as um, as harming the middle class. And uh, uh, Cooper's uh, McCrory said, "Well, what, you know, what, what would you what would you do? Would you raise any of these taxes? You know, would you?" take these tax cuts we've already made away, the corporate and the income taxes. Uh, and Cooper just says that, you know, that we, can, we can do better uh, by moving money around. It doesn't necessarily have to be a tax increase. But they talked about the uh, crime lab as well. Uh, what, did they, uh, what did they say about that? There was, I think, a question uh, from the Chuck Todd about, uh, to Cooper about uh, the wait times for uh, resolving uh, investigations? Um, yeah, it was kind of familiar ground. It's just, uh, you know, the, the truth is Cooper, when he became attorney general in 2000, inherited a lot of problems <clears throat> um, with a backlog in, in, in DNA rape kit testing and uh, some, some generally shoddy uh, workmanship in other aspects of the crime lab. And uh, uh, Cooper basically says, I took care of it. I, uh, 
got out in front of it. I ordered an audit. I you know hired a new director, and we we did a lot of things. And the Republicans are saying that he, uh, you know, he he could have done more. So, all right. Well, uh, we'll talk to Colin a little bit about the Senate debate and what he made of it. Uh, before we go to that, Will, uh, you did do a fact check this week on uh, the Senate race, not from the debate, um, but uh, a claim about Deborah Ross and the Iran deal. Uh, there was an ad that claimed that she uh, supported the Iran deal and the, uh, the payment uh, that I think it called a ransom, ransom payment. So what, uh, what was the truth behind that one? Yeah, there's there's kind of a lot of moving parts with this one, but I'll try and be brief about it. Um, yeah, it was an ad from the uh, John Bolton Super PAC. Um, people might be familiar with John Bolton as the uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations during uh, George Bush's tenure. Um, and uh, he is now uh, on the sidelines with this Super PAC that he uses to, uh, to promote uh, conservative candidates uh, like Richard Burr that he likes. And he said that uh, Deborah Ross supports the Iran deal and supports the ransom that it paid for American hostages. Um, and before we get into anything else, should note that um, the uh, the national branch of PolitiFact has previously looked into the uh, the ransom payment and said that it's uh, mostly false to call that a ransom. Uh, they said uh, basically the background is we actually uh, we. Uh, we took a bunch of money from Iran in 1979 uh, to sell them some military equipment. But then, you know, after the revolution, we kept all of their money, never gave them any of the equipment. So we have been in arbitration ever since then for 30 years um, and uh, finally settled with them uh, in January and agreed to pay them $1.7 billion. And that coincided with the nuclear deal and... Um, and obviously the uh, the return of some prisoners who had American prisoners that had been held in Iran. Um, so experts tend to agree that you know this, yeah, it it looks pretty sketchy, and there definitely was the timing was you know connected. It you know it wasn't just a coincidence, but um, not exactly a ransom. But getting back to this ad, um, Ross has specifically said um, a couple times, both in interviews and also in uh, in a paper she has on foreign policy that. She didn't support that payment. That she, you know, doesn't wouldn't support things like that in the future. Um, but that she does support the Iran deal. Um, she kind of couches it, says that she is actually in favor of more sanctions on Iran in the future if they, you know, can continue funding uh, terror groups like Hezbollah. Um, but she does support it. So uh, we gave this claim a half true um, because. It was right that she supports the Iran deal, but wrong that she supports uh, the so-called ransom payments. So. All right, and uh, we'll look forward to anything you're checking from that debate or from uh, the Senate race in general. There's a lot of ads flying back and forth in that one. Yeah, too, you know, having so. two debates within two days of each other has really been uh, busy work for this, <laughs> this one-man fact-checking operation here. I, I wish they could have spaced them out a little bit. No kidding. No <laughs> kidding. Well, we'll have another one next week, too. Uh, all right. Well, we'll be right back with Colin and with the candidates for attorney general and, uh, of course, headliner of the week. Stay with us. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. Be the someone who gives their time. Be the someone who lends an ear. 
Be the someone who takes a step. This is Christina Ricci with RAIN, asking you to join the fight against sexual violence and volunteer in your community. Log on to RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G, to learn how you can be the someone. This message brought to you by the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network and this station. And we're back uh, with Domecast. Colin, you watched the Senate debate and wrote a story last night. Uh, what did you What did you make of it? This is the only uh, debate between Richard Burr and Deborah Ross. Uh, I guess, first of all, um, how did that come about, uh, that there's only going to be one? Yeah, so this is one where uh, we've seen, I think, typically three debates in, in most of the contests for governor and Senate in the last couple election cycles. This one uh, was the result of months of negotiations uh, involving the North Carolina Association of Broadcasters. It was in the works for a while before they even uh, confirmed that they w- were indeed going to have one debate. Um, and that was largely the result of Richard Burr's campaign uh, only wanting to have one debate. Um, they said, you know, his schedule as Senate Intelligence Chairman and the fact that he wasn't really going to do a whole lot of campaigning before October made it difficult to do more than one. The Ross campaign has uh, lobbied repeatedly for a total of four debates, uh, typically something you see common among uh, challengers. Uh, although, given Burr's debate performance last night, I, I think it would probably not be a bad thing for him to do more debates. He does really well in that format. Okay, so yeah, tell me about that. What, uh, so he did very well. Uh, what about Ross? Yeah, I think she did. She did well. Uh, she definitely was on message trying to uh, bring the the topic back around to, to Donald Trump. I think she her campaign recognizes that that's an area where uh, he may be a little bit more weak because he has uh, continued to endorse Donald Trump despite uh, some of the things that he's actually condemned, including the the comments on the the leaked tape recently. Uh, so she sort of hit that. Uh, Pretty frequently, so much so that some of the the post debate uh, press releases we got from the Republican side was that uh, we we should stop talking about Donald Trump because this is the Senate race, not the the presidential race. Uh, she seemed a little bit nervous at times. Uh, this would be the first uh, sort of debate scenario for her, I think, in her political career. Um, Burr, however. Um, was on his home turf for a good bit of the night. There was a lot of questions about foreign policy, Syria and immigration and cyber hacking. And these are areas where, of course, being Senate intelligence chairman means that you generally know what you're talking about. So he was clearly sort of in his comfort zone at that point and, and was able to uh, make his uh, points about that. Um, we got to guess a little bit about the sex offender registry issue. Uh, Burr hit, hit her pretty hard on that, um, using a, a number of uh, comments and quotes from past news articles back in the 90s when she was uh, lobbying uh, from the ACLU with some concerns about the creation of the sex offender registry. She, of course, countered that she has uh, never been against the sex offender registry. She was merely raising concerns uh, and then went on to uh, vote for the sex offender registry a number of times in the legislature. So uh, lots of hot topics, but I think in general it was a much uh, more sedate affair, certainly more so than the presidential debates we've seen recently. But I think also uh, in comparison to the governor's debate a couple nights earlier, uh, they were generally quite polite. There were very few interruptions, uh, very few moments where it seemed like the two of them were getting their blood pressure up over some disagreement. They all both sort of stuck to their talking points and kept it civil. 
Bird did get upset with her to say that she was getting pers- saying that she was getting personal, right? Yeah. So this was the issue of Burr's wealth. Um, I don't know that the Ross campaign has been hitting super hard on this, but some of the uh, outside groups that have been running ads in the race have been arguing that Burr has dramatically increased his personal wealth during the time that he served in Congress. Uh, she sort of alluded to that, uh, and, and he hit back uh, going what sort of surprised me level of detail about his finances. He was telling us about his IRA, how much money was in there at the beginning of his term and how much is in there now. Uh, but then went on to explain that uh, most of his wealth that would show up in these sort of numbers that uh, some of these groups are quoting is actually his wife's real estate business that she apparently sometime after he, he went off to Congress uh, started this fairly successful real estate business. So he basically said, you know, Miss Ross, you are attacking my wife, not me. And, and she kind of, Sort of backed off by saying, look, I'm not, you know, I have nothing but respect for your wife. But then she went back to the point of, well, you voted to raise your own pay several times as a member of Congress. And you voted against the the Stock Act, which was the uh, ban on insider trading among members of Congress. Uh, he was one of only a few who voted for that. He explained during the debate that the, the reason he did that was that insider trading in general is illegal. So he felt like it was a duplicative law to have one specific to Congress when really it's already illegal for everybody. All right. Well, uh, in addition this week, you talked to the AG candidates, uh, Buck Newton, Josh Stein. So uh, set us up. What are we about to hear? Yeah, so I sat down with both of them uh, to to discuss their runs for attorney general. Of course, both are state senators. Josh Stein's the Democrat and uh, Buck Newton is the Republican um, Stein is from Raleigh. Uh, Newton is from Wilson. Um, they're absolute sort of polar opposites in terms of their uh, political views. Uh, but we talked to them. I talked to them a little bit about uh, the fight over House Bill Two, um, as well as the involvement of some outside uh, money in this race. There are millions of dollars being spent on ads, most notably by the Republican Attorney General's Association. But there are several other groups uh, involved, and it. it's getting to be one of the most expensive uh, races for a state attorney general. Uh, Certainly in our state's history, but but possibly uh, to some degree on a national level as well. So we talked a little bit about that, that them uh, that with them, and so we can take a little listen. Okay, let's listen to it, and then we'll be back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Uh, I'm Josh Stein. I'm running for attorney general. I my background is that I was a senior deputy attorney general for eight years, where uh, I took on predatory mortgage lenders, identity thieves, telemarketing scammers that were going after our parents and grandparents' nest eggs, and sexual predators who were using social networking sites to uh, target kids. I also helped run the payday lenders charging loan shark interest rates of 400 to 500% on working families out of the state of North Carolina. I don't need on-the-job training as attorney general because of my work in the office. I already know the job. Uh, I am running for attorney general for a very basic reason, which is to protect families across North Carolina. And there's a host of ways I want to do that. I want to protect families by cracking down on violent crime, confronting the opioid epidemic, and reducing repeat crime through effective prisoner reentry programs. I want to protect seniors and consumers uh, from scam artists. And I want to protect the taxpayer by going after Medicaid fraud. The, the job of AG is really pretty basic in my mind. It's to stand up for people, for businesses that do things the right way, that play by the rules, and you take on whoever doesn't, whether that's a criminal, a corrupt politician, or a, a corporation that, that's breaking the law, uh, because in North Carolina, no one can be above the law. 
Uh, on the issue of uh, defending state laws in court, obviously that's come up a lot in both the governor's race and in your race, as your opponent seems to point to, uh, how Roy Cooper has sort of gone about deciding at, at what point do you stop defending a state law that's being challenged in court? What's your litmus test for that? Um, obviously, it's the job of the AGs to uh, defend what the legislature and the governor does, but at, at what point do you say, you know, the AG's office isn't going to be involved in this because uh, for whatever reason? It's a very simple test. And that is the oath that I will take when I'm sworn in, which is to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the laws and Constitution of North Carolina that are not inconsistent with the United States Constitution. My statutory duty is to defend the state, which is very different than what I've been doing in the legislature, where in the legislature, I'm a policymaker. And I stand up and I say, this is what I think of this policy proposal. I think it's good. I think it's bad. I think it's constitutional or unconstitutional. And I vote either red for no or green for yes. As attorney general, I have a different role. I want to be involved with the legislature on the front end to give them advice, to adv also to advise the governor, uh, so that hopefully we can avoid passing unconstitutional laws in the first place. There have been at least 13 laws that my opponent has voted for that the state and federal courts have ruled to be unconstitutional. So the best thing we can do is to prevent these issues from arising in the first place. Uh, but I'm not naive. I know there will be some bills that the legislature passes that I think are bad ideas. But my job as attorney general is to defend the state and to defend state law. Uh, and I will do that unless it violates the United States Constitution. That, that is the highest oath that I take as, a, as an attorney general. Uh, your opponent, uh, speaking of laws that have been challenged, your opponent has been obviously a very strong proponent of House Bill 2. Uh, what's your take on that, and, and should it be concerning to folks that he's been such a strong supporter of this law? It, absolutely, it should be a concern. Uh, he embraces this as Buck's bill. Uh, the House Bill 2 is discriminatory against people who are LGBT, gay or lesbian or transgender, and it people talk about bathrooms. But this bill isn't about bathrooms. This bill was about stripping North Carolinians of existing rights that they have under the law, protecting them from discrimination in terms of being fired for their job for being gay, being denied housing or a restaurant or a hotel room because they're gay. And there were 14 jurisdictions that have protections to pro in those communities for people who are LGBT. And HB2 eliminated those protections. It is a discriminatory law, and the business community recognizes that. And we have been paying an, an immense price here in North Carolina, whether it's thousands of jobs or hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, we lost PayPal, Deutsche Bank, conferences, uh, conf uh, um, music shows. And then, of course, most recently, the NBA, followed by the NCAA, followed by the ACC, and North Carolina is the home of the ACC. It is outrageous that the ACC is no longer able to play their championship events in North Carolina because of Buck's discriminatory bill. Uh, Newton was such a proponent of this bill. He actually said at a rally, of pro-HB2 rally, that the rainbow flag waving crowd doesn't like the way things have always been here in North Carolina and that we have to fight to keep our state straight. That type of divisive exclusionary rhetoric has no place in our political discourse. And 
that is particularly so coming from somebody who wants to be the top law enforcement officer of the state. You cannot write off a segment of the population that you don't like or have issues with. That's not how it works. The attorney general has to protect all the people of North Carolina, and that's the type of attorney general I'll be. Uh, what's your thoughts about how uh, a race that I think in the past in North Carolina hasn't had this much attention outside the state is, is getting this much interest? What's at stake here that's prompting uh, a national group, either Republican or Democratic, to want to wanna help influence the outcome of your race? Independent of my candidacy, there is a growing, very troubling trend, which is big money, out-of-state, corporate interests trying to buy elections for select candidates for attorney general because they want to get actions from that office. They have matters before the office where they want to have uh, influence in terms of the official policies and actions of offices of attorney general. There is more money, $4 million, being spent in North Carolina by this out-of-state big money super PAC than has ever been spent in a race for attorney general in the history of our country. It is immensely troubling. It will represent between 90 to 100% of my opponent's paid communications are coming from this out-of-state big money interest. So it tells you two things. One, they are desperately trying to elect Buck Newton as their attorney general because they want him to do their bidding for them. And two... They absolutely want to defeat our campaign because they know I'm going to fight for the people of North Carolina. I'm not running for attorney general to do their bidding. Uh, I've always been my, my record is one of standing up for people and willingness to take on powerful interests. And that's what I'll do as attorney general. I'm Buck Newton, and uh, I'm uh, originally from born and raised in Wilson, North Carolina, and uh Went to school up at Appalachian State. Went to graduate school at State for a little while. Worked up in Washington, D.C. on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a little while. and Went to law school at Campbell. Got married. Have three children. Uh, my wife's name is Hope. We've been married for 22 years. Set up my law practice in Wilson, uh, Newton and Lee. Been practicing law there ever since. Uh, in 2010, I was elected to the State Senate and still serve there for the remainder of this year and chair the Judiciary Committee there and amongst other things. And that's about as brief and quick as I know how to do it. Yeah. So what made you decide to, to make the run for attorney general? Yeah, um, well, we need an attorney general. Uh, and um, frankly, we haven't had one doing his job for quite a while. And that's been a frustration of mine for some years now. Uh, it was very clear uh, that our current attorney general was interested in in playing politics and moving up the ladder uh i think i think that's uh, a real detriment to the state i think that's a disservice to the state and uh so knowing that he was going to vacate the post uh i began to think about it and talk with my colleagues and friends about it i thought it was very important that uh, there be a, a high quality candidate in this race and after a lot of time and thought and prayer uh decided that that was something that I should do and I, I don't regret it a bit it's um, the more I've the more I've looked at it and the more I've thought about it and the more I've uh, considered it before I even got into the campaign and certainly since I've been in the campaign I'm very much looking forward to serving in this capacity and helping the state 
Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, decisions by the current, current Attorney General not to uh, continue to defend particular lawsuits on some of the hot-button issues of the last couple of years. Um, in, in talking to your opponent, he seems to agree with uh, with uh, Mr. Cooper's stance on, on this. Um, from where you stand, do you feel that the Attorney General needs to, and, and would you as Attorney General, uh, defend any uh, lawfully passed state laws throughout the court process, whether that's just a uh, initial case or all the way up to the Supreme Court if it goes that far? Yeah, as a general rule, yes. Uh, I mean, there there are um, certainly conceivably situations where uh, it may it may make sense um, uh, to because of the way um, uh, courts are ruling the 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 unlikeliness of winning on appeal or something that I can't say that every single thing needs to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, but generally speaking, uh, that that's the job of the attorney general. That's that's their duty. Yeah, one thing I guess you've gotten probably the most headlines out of is some of the social legislation you've been involved in most most recently. Uh, House Bill Two, you led that through the yeah. the Senate. Uh, were you surprised by uh, the backlash that that received and and Knowing what what the fallout from that has been, do you still feel like it was a yeah. it was the right decision? The 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 second part of your question is um, is yes, I, I think it was the right decision. Um, the 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 breadth and the depth of the um, pushback was not something that I, I I fully expected. I mean, I knew that there would be pushback because the far left. Uh, is very anxious to to push these kinds of extreme uh, um, rules and ordinances, especially by local communities. Uh, and and in hindsight, being 2020, um, it's very clear to me that that uh, the city council of Charlotte was was um, without having any concern for the well-being of the people of the state were were very. Uh, intentional in picking this fight. You know, when I announced my run for attorney general, I never, I never thought we'd be talking about bathrooms. It never, frankly, crossed my mind. And uh, I, I guess part of me just never believed that Charlotte would be so, so uh, Charlotte's city council, I should say, to be precise, not the city of Charlotte. I think most people in the city of Charlotte opposed this this crazy ordinance that eliminated uh, uh, sex specific locker rooms at the YMCA. And you know, a lot of people want to. Uh, um, make this into some other thing it's very simple to me i have a 13 year old daughter uh you know i don't think men should be able to follow her in the locker room and watch her change and and uh or show themselves to her and 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 uh i this, this ordinance that uh that charlotte did was just um insane and uh i don't know most most rational people that understand what charlotte was doing uh don't have any trouble with with it. we had we had to do something and it was an unlawful ordinance to begin with but charlotte city council didn't care they were going to do it anyway and um you know if if i had to do it over again i still i still think we should have uh, taken some legislative action we may have um framed it a little different we may have uh uh, uh you know there there may have been a better way to go about it we certainly should have um been much better about explaining it to people about what was going on and and uh, but that's where frankly the media comes in to make sure that they tell the whole story and not just one side of it 
One of the interesting things in this this uh, particular attorney general's race has been the role of uh, of some of these uh, national groups uh, getting involved in this, uh, particularly sure. the Republican Attorney General's Association, which has uh, <laughs> uh, been uh, been doing some pretty active uh, ad campaigns, um, pointing out some issues uh, that they have with with uh, Josh Stein. Um, he, I think, has countered by saying that he believes that uh, the the number of uh, sort of business interests that donate to this organization um, should, in his mind, be a, a red flag for your candidacy that somehow you would be beholden to to some of the folks that donate to this group. Uh, What's your response to that? Well, I think that all voters should be concerned about who a candidate uh, supports and and what they support. I mean, I find it very um, typically hypocritical of of my opponent to to try to act like – I mean, he and his father have put almost a million dollars into his campaign. Now, I, I don't have that kind of money, and my dad doesn't have that kind of money. And um, I'm not sure if my dad would put that much money in it if he had it. Um, he certainly supports me. But, um, uh, you know, Stein is getting a lot of money uh, from unions. He's getting a lot of money from the uh, from the uh, HRC, uh, the Human Rights Campaign crowd, and a lot of money. I mean, he's held fundraisers out of state uh, in, uh, I believe, in Massachusetts and New York. I don't know if he's been to California or not. But, you know, who, who's funding his campaign is 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 very interesting. Frankly, um, you know, the, the Republican Attorney General's Association is very strongly supportive of my campaign, and, and I'm glad they are. I, I, I got in this race compared to Stein very late and uh, uh, had a very contested primary. And so, uh, the money that I uh, raised and spent during the primary was was uh, was a significant amount, and so in March I started uh, with with um, basically zero dollars, and so uh, you know it 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 they they have been able to help at least um, or they will I assume uh, you know that's independent of how they spend their money and what they say. I don't know until they do it. Um, I don't have any. We're not allowed to coordinate, so. Um, um, you know, I'm I'm glad that they're helping me, and uh, I think there are a lot of companies that 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 give to them. Uh, just like there's a lot of, you know, he he fails to mention there's a couple million dollars being spent by the Democrat group as well on his behalf, and they get money from the same sometimes the same companies. So I mean, is he beholden to them too? I mean, it's just it's just a political. Uh, gimmick on his part to try to make it out like he's some sort of underdog or something like that and it's really it's really um, I think it's rich who is your headliner of the week who is your headliner of the week who is your headliner of the week headliner of the week Welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide who the most consequential person, place, thing, idea in North Carolina politics was this week. Uh, Lynn Bonner, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to pick uh, Swift Water Rescue Teams. Um, In the aftermath of this uh, uh, historic flooding, it's you know almost every day we see uh, someone being rescued from high water, um, taken from homes and cars out of trees. Uh, so um, for some really um, 
incredible work. I'm going to pick uh, pick people who are, are rescuing those people. All right, Swiftwater rescue teams uh, out uh, doing good work this week in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew. Uh, Swiftwater rescue teams are in the hat for headliner of the week. Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner of the week? Well, this one is hot off the press. <clears throat> I literally just got this uh, press release this morning. Rustle that paper a little here. more. Here. Yes. <laughs> He's got paper, Ouch, y'all. It's hot. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Tom Campbell, the host of NC Spin. He sent out a little uh, press release this morning saying, I've been covering, this is a quote, I've been covering elections since 1964, and this is the most disgusting campaign from top to bottom in my lifetime. Even those of us political junkies who love public policy discussions are turned off by the lack of respect candidates pay each other, but more importantly to voters. And he blames the presidential election as well as the gubernatorial uh, debate that, that was earlier this week. And he uh, you know, says not only are they insulting, but they're just not dealing with substance. So uh, I thought it was kind of a strong statement. All right. Tom Campbell, fed up with the uh, never-ending and... Uh, um Never ending like just when you think it can't get any deeper, you uh, uh, it, 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 it gets deeper. Uh, Tom Campbell in the hat, uh, as well as Swiftwater Rescue Teams, Colin Campbell, uh, another Campbell. Who's your headliner of the week? Yeah, no, no relation that I know of to uh, to Tom Campbell, but I've got kind of a, a similar theme to mine this year. I'm doing a uh, sort of a, a two way uh, nominee, uh, Chuck Todd and Jonathan Carl. They were the uh, high-profile debate moderators that we had this week here in North Carolina. Chuck Todd was here for the gubernatorial debate on Tuesday, and then Jonathan Carl, who is uh, maybe a little bit less well-known than, than Chuck Todd. He's the uh, ABC News White House correspondent. He was moderating the uh, the Senate debate, and uh, both of those, uh, compared to the, uh, to the presidential debates, were far more substantive, far more civil, and uh, perhaps a, a little bit more inspiring to uh, people who are watching politics on, on both sides of the aisle, and uh, I think they had a lot to do with uh, keeping those debates on uh, on important topics and uh, away from uh, some of the uh, back and forth uh, insults and stuff that we've seen a lot uh, this election season. And, and the candidates did their part to uh, to keep things uh, on, on the civiler side of things. So for for that, I'm, I'm nominating uh, Jonathan Carl and Chuck Todd. Okay. And, uh, man, I feel for the uh, moderators in the presidential debates. I don't think it's through much through their fault that those have been uh, off the rails. Uh, but, uh, but you're right. Uh, uh, Jonathan Carl and uh, Chuck Todd uh, seem to get good reviews in their uh, moderation of the, of the governors and Senate debates. So uh, they're in the hat for headliner of the week as well as Tom Campbell and Swiftwater Rescue Teams. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is Franklin Graham, uh, the evangelist preacher. He, in the past, oh, probably the past week, so he's a good headliner of the whole week, has taken some flack for sticking with Donald Trump in the wake of, you know, some of the tapes and allegations that are coming out against Trump. Um, but uh, he had a r- rally in downtown Raleigh yesterday. More than 10,000 people showed up. Clearly, a lot of people still, you know, trust him, want to hear what he has to say, and he, uh, you know, he continued supporting Trump. Uh, oh, that was a pretty tepid uh, support that he gave to Trump. I think he told people to hold their noses and go vote. Um, but very strong support for Pat McCrory as well. Um, it also made it very hard for me to find a place to go get lunch yesterday. Uh, downtown lunch. <laughs> downtown was very, uh, very crowded. But um, 
Yeah, no, clearly, uh, clearly his message still resonates with people, thousands of people, you know, flocking in from all over the state, not just, you know, from the local area here. Uh, so Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham, and he uh, said something to the effect that uh, don't vote based on uh, emails uh, that were lost or uh, lewd remarks that were made, but vote based on the Supreme Court, which I think everybody pretty much sees as is a, a, a semi-endorsement of, of Trump. Um, so Franklin Graham in the hat for headliner of the week, along with uh, Swiftwater Rescue teams, Tom Campbell, uh, Jonathan Carl, and Chuck Todd. Um Politics was really overshadowed by uh, the flooding this week for the second week, because last week our headliner of the week was Hurricane Matthew. So uh, for the second week in a row, um, I think uh, uh, politics kind of gets second billing here. Um, So I'll go with Swiftwater Rescue Teams, and uh, uh, they are our headliners of the week this week. So everybody, please uh, stay safe out there. And uh, catch us next week on uh, the Domecast. Thanks. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 